in a world where jobs are how most people make money. One man, one desire, one challenge dares to break the mold. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network, where we don't work for money. Money works for us. Coming soon. Viewer discretion advised. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network, where cash flow is king. Real estate investing, the means, so you can enjoy your retirement dreams. This is the show where we cut right to the chase. No sales pitch, no long monologues, just simple how-to real estate investing advice, so you can earn the passive income you need to enjoy your retirement today. And now, your host and chief old dog, Bill Manacero. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network. I'm your host, Bill Manacero, and this is the show where 50-plusers and anyone else who wants to join us get solid, no-sales-pitch real estate investing advice to help generate real cash flow. This podcast airs twice weekly on Mondays and Fridays, and if you aren't already a subscriber, go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, type in Old Dogs, it's spelled D-A-W-G-S, find our podcast, and subscribe. Well, we have two guests today for you, um, and this is something we don't do often, and hopefully, technically, it'll work out really well, but uh, uh, one of them is uh, actually an alumni, and uh, that person is uh, Jay Scott, and uh, Jay has been in previous episodes, uh, 2019, actually 2018, I think it was the first one, Real Estate Investing Success Through Great Timing and Effective Deal Analysis, and uh, two, uh, in April 1st, 2019, Recession Proof Real Estate Investing, which is pretty relevant today. Well, uh, just to give you a little background on Jay, for those of you that may not have listened to those episodes, Jay is an accomplished entrepreneur, investor, best-selling author, and respected advisor. He has bought, built, rehabbed, sold, syndicated, and held over $70 million in residential property and currently owns several hundred units as a managing partner at Bar Down Investments. His diverse experience and unmatched knowledge of economic cycles and market trends makes his coaching valuable to the success of aspiring multifamily investors. And he is accompanied by Ashley Wilson, who is the co-founder of Bar Down Investments, LLC. Um, she is uh, co-founder of not only Bar Down <laughs> Investments, LLC, but uh, how's, how's it look? That's a really cute name. How's It's like House IT Look, uh, LLC, also co-host of the Passive Investing Show, uh, best-selling author of The Only Woman in the Room, a book called The Only Woman in the Room, Knowledge and Inspiration from 20 Women Real Estate Investors. And she's a Bigger Pocket series host. She started investing in real estate in 2009, has been involved in over $100 million in transactions within both single and multifamily real estate across over 1,500 units. 
When Ashley is not working on her businesses, she enjoys spending time with her family, including her husband and their two daughters. Additionally, Ashley enjoys competing with her horses. Diakara, is that right? And uh, and wow, <laughs> those are great names. <laughs> wow. Well, you guys, welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network. Thanks so much for having Thanks. us, Bill. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you guys on, and good to have you back, Jay. Um, it's uh, you know when Jay first was on, he was a flipper, I believe, and uh, and probably one of the best ones out there, doing you know amazing things, and uh, and he even hinted back way back then, you know, I really think I want to get into multifamily, and well, it looks like you've done it, and you've done it in a big way here. So um, you and Ashley sound like you've got. Uh, got a lot of stuff going on but uh yeah maybe you can just kind of you know bring us up to date and uh um we can kind of move into i think one of the areas we talked about uh, you know off air here was the idea of you know how how do you adjust your management in this current economy we've talked a lot about the current economy and where we're going and what's happening but uh, uh ashley is uh the one that really handles a lot of the management side. And that's key for any property. Um, without without good management, you really don't have a good investment. So, uh, yeah, maybe you guys could just kind of, you know, give us a little rundown there. Sure. I'm happy to start. Um, so, yeah, back in 2018, I think it was the first time I was on the show, and I was thinking about getting into multifamily for a number of reasons. Um, and at the time, uh, Ashley and I have known each other since about 2015. Um, and at the time that I was looking to get into multifamily, um, I kind of went through my Rolodex and said, Hey, who can I, uh, who can I seek out that might be able to help me kind of break into this area and teach me and, and really help me get, uh, comfortable with multifamily. And, um, I remembered Ashley, Ashley had been doing multifamily for a few years at this point. And, um, I reached out to her and I basically said, look, I'm interested in, in, in learning this side of the business, um, this, this asset class, um, would you be willing to kind of help me out? And um, I basically offered, hey, um, I'll, I'll make my time available, my, my knowledge available, I'll put in my effort, money, network, whatever it takes. Um, and in return, I would just love if you could kind of teach me the business. And um, she jumped at that. I jumped at that. It just seemed like a, a great opportunity for both of us. And um, year or two later, um, we realized that we work tremendously well together. Uh, Ashley is absolutely the, the best multifamily operator I've ever met. So um, I was I was honored that she was willing to help me out. And we just had a lot of really good complementary skills. And so in, in 2020, we, we ended up uh, deciding to, to partner um, in Bar Down, the, the company that she started. And um, and we're buying multifamily throughout the Southeast at these, at, uh, these days. Uh, we currently own about a thousand units in Texas. And, um, and yeah, the rest is history. Yeah, that's great. That's great. First off, I got to say, though, you know, you're you're too young to use a Rolodex, you know, I mean, that's <laughs> I, I love Rolodexes, you know, and it's like you might I, be surprised, Bill. I, I am I am your target audience right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, 
I hit 50 last year, so I, I am right there. In, in... <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. No, I just I love it. I love it when I hear somebody say, I went to my Rolodex. I go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so, so that's that's how you guys got started. You're already up to like a thousand units. This is this is pretty amazing. Now, when, when you mentioned uh, operators, so she has been really involved on the syndication side, like before you did uh, in and was, you know, kind of handling that and, uh, or was it more management of the actual, uh, properties? So I was involved in the syndication side. Um, so like, like Jay, I had a lot of prior experience with flipping. Um, I started with single rentals I did short-term rentals and long-term rentals. And then that transitioned into, I started a flipping business with my father. That's the company house of look. And uh, we started on lower price point homes initially, but then transitioned into higher price point homes. But the takeaway really from that experience was my dad is a general contractor and he's had his own company for over 40 years. So he's worked on everything from residential to commercial. So I had a lot of exposure into uh, construction in general. And uh, after school, I actually went into corporate America and worked in the pharmaceutical industry in clinical R&D. So I worked on the Ambien team to start for Santa Fe Adventist. I didn't work on Ambien, but I worked on that team. And we worked on different indications like major depression disorder, insomnia, schizophrenia. And then I transitioned to two other pharmaceutical companies, eventually landing at GlaxoSmithKline, where I ended up as the global director of project management for vaccine development. And all of that taught me how to manage from afar. So even when I worked at Santa Fe Aventis, everyone I was working with, all of my counterparts were remote. Um, and then when I went to Wyeth, which is now Pfizer, the same uh, set up. And then when I transitioned to GlaxoSmithKline, all of a sudden it was on a global stage. So I was contending with time zone and cultural changes um, between what we were doing in the U.S. versus what the rest of the world was doing. So that gave me a really good skill set coupled with my father's influence in construction and being able to manage from afar. So I transitioned into commercial real estate um, because an opportunity presented itself where a uh, partnership group was under contract and one of the buildings at the apartment complex had burnt down to the ground and the seller did not want to do the renovation. They wanted to forward the proceeds from the insurance company to the buyer. Um, and uh, honestly, like most syndication groups um, at that time and even still present today, there wasn't someone on the team with any sort of construction experience or knowledge. So that severity of a situation really was daunting for that syndication company. So we partnered together and initially I was just to run the construction side of things, but it eventually transitioned into doing asset and construction management. So that was my first foray into multifamily ownership as a general partner, I partnered on another deal in a similar type of situation. I also consulted on several different properties for different ownership groups that were in uh, distressed situations. 
Um, and then I came to the realization that, you know, the asset manager ends up getting the reputation of however the project does, but really the underwriter is writing the playbook on how the asset manager is to execute. And if that playbook is not even feasible, the asset manager can't deliver. So that's when I decided to launch Bardon Investments. And then shortly thereafter, uh, Jay and I started working together and we've built the company since then um, to what Jay and I both are very proud to have with a focus on operations and construction because Jay and I have such similar backgrounds as he was alluding to earlier, we work very well together. Um, we aren't the same person, but we definitely value the same ethics and morals and conduct of how we want to run our business and what we want to be known for. And then we have different skill sets so, and they're complementary. So it makes it enjoyable to work together. That's great! Wow, what a background from pharma to you know to, to you know to syndications and and commercial real estate. I mean, that's that's a that's quite a background. Very impressive. Looking at that, you know, that one the first project that you did with, I mean, a total, you know, the burned down building. I don't know what was left, but. Uh, yeah, that that you're talking not just rehab. You're talking about, I mean, major. Is it almost like ground up construction, right? It was ground up construction. So um, most people think of it and they say, "Oh, well, you know, it's probably like a little stove fire," but it wasn't. It was. I mean, we were down to the foundation. We didn't even have studs up when I took over, and and when we acquired the property. And the other thing we were contending with was there was a provision in the insurance policy and that carried over to our contracts that we wouldn't be able to receive the insurance proceeds unless we had a CO by the end of the year, December 31st. So we purchased the property on July 9th. And if anyone knows anything about construction to build an entire building from July to December is quite difficult. Um, but I'm happy to report we were able to do it actually two weeks before December 31st. We got our CO and we did it under budget. So um, wow. I think that really, um, honestly, if I can toot my horn about one thing, I have to say that really put me on the map because I don't think a lot of people really knew the experience that I had firsthand. But once they saw that and... Um, you know, the actual delivery of everything, I think that's when everything really changed for me. Was that a syndicated deal, you said? Yes. Mm -hmm. So you had to get investors to invest in this burnt down building, <laughs> you know, to, you know, to, to what it was going to be. I mean, that, that had to be a little bit of a challenge, I would have thought. Um, yes, but fortunately it was while we were under contract, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was something where the investors knew, they were they were very familiar with the the current situation and it was one building um so it wasn't the entire property um i don't remember the building count on that property but it was 124 units and if memory serves me correctly i think there were either 12 or 14 units that were completely gone so i think it was 12 units um that's so they were going in knowing 
that we were down um, to 112 units to start. The lender knew, I mean, everyone knew it, lender knew it, insurance company, but, um, you know, we had everything lined up so that we were able to start work day one. One of the things, you know, that I'm well-versed on is obtaining permits and different townships uh, ordinance. So one thing we were able to trigger quickly was to apply for the permits while we were under contract, which is um, municipality by municipality. Um, Sometimes you can't do that. You have to actually have purchased the property before you can submit. Well, I identified that we could submit prior to that. So we actually got our permit prior to even closing. So we were able to start on day one. So little things like that and tricks, that makes a huge difference um, to being able to manage successfully. Yeah, it's also a good uh, it's a good lesson for anybody that's listening um, to really playing to your strengths. So um, Ashley and I really we focus our business on um, on those things that we're already good at, as opposed to going out and trying to learn lots of new skills. So Ashley and I both have uh, a lot of construction experience. Uh, Ashley worked for for her father for a long time who did development. I did flipping houses for a long time. Uh, Ashley and I both came from the corporate world and have a lot of management experience experience. And so for us, we like to play to those strengths. Um, we built a business that um, is is very um, tightly run from a management standpoint. And then we look for properties um, that kind of fit our wheelhouse, which is properties that need a lot of value add, properties that need a lot of renovation, whether it's uh, burned down buildings or properties that need heavy management overhaul um, or whether they need physical renovations, whatever it is, those are the things they are trying to acquire those skills. Nothing wrong with that, but there's, there's a lot to be said for taking the skills that you already have and figuring out how to apply them to a problem that currently exists. That's great. That's a, that's a perfect example of that. That's, that's excellent. Um, uh, now these so these aren't really your typical value add deals, right? These are, I mean, it's distressed. It seems to be the key word here. Um, whether it's uh, you know distressed in, in in terms of the condition of of a property or um, the management side of it, um, and and that and that seems to me like uh, you know you you would probably get some some amazing numbers on ROI. You know, after you finish what you're doing. Um, I would think that these these buildings would be, I mean, you could get them at a discount or some type. Is that true? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's been a huge change in the market in terms of what uh, people were evaluating um, distressed assets historically versus today. So with less buyers in the buyer pool, the add-in cushion that we see today for upside on value add wasn't factored in. So they were really truly paying off of um, NOI and current NOI, in-place NOI, as opposed to performa NOI. We see a huge departure from that about probably around 2018, to be honest with you. 2018, there was a change where all of a sudden people started adding in and, and um, factoring in this upside potential and value add assets. Um, and the reason behind that, you know, for your listeners who aren't so familiar, um, with why that is, uh, with value add, there is still meat on the bone, um, in terms of industry jargon. And that essentially means that the multifamily properties are 
primarily evaluated off of what's called the NOI approach, and that's your income minus your losses annualized. And uh, historically, multifamily was just evaluated off of in-place NOI. So it was divided then by the trade cap rate in that market. But what we're seeing you know, from 2018 onwards, as more um, people started to flood the multifamily market, that people were overpaying. You could you could categorize it that way, or you could say looking for the upside potential. So, let's say the NOI today is 100,000, but you change out management, you do some renovations, and you could push it to 180,000 within two years time to three years time, people were underwriting that and then buying it off of Performa NOI. So what the future could have. So essentially they were paying for the value, the, the greatest and best use for that property as opposed to what it was being used for today. So they were, that's why some people say it's overpaying because that current owner wasn't producing that return, but there was that return that was able to be achieved. Um, so that I think is, you know, part of the reason that multifamily has had such a run up over the past few years is people have looked at value add and, um, packed in that upside potential, which in turn has compressed cap rates. So in fact, value adds were actually rewarded for poor operations because then all of a sudden they had more upside. Mm, interesting. And this is the struggle. This is this, this, this is the struggle that, that we see in this industry all the time. Um, buyers and sellers, buyers want to pay what a property is worth today. And sellers want the buyer to pay what a property is going to be worth after they buy it and renovate it. Basically, the, the buyers see the potential and say, I'll, I'm going to pay knowing what the potential is, but I'm not going to pay for that potential having been achieved. The sellers want the price that that's going to be achieved after that, all that potential has been, been achieved. Um, and so over the years, basically what we see is when we talk about buyers and sellers markets, um, basically what we're talking about is that negotiating range between the buyer's price and the seller's price. And over the years, that sort of flip-flops. For many years, up until about 2017, 2018, um, it was a buyer's market, and, and buyers were able to get the price today's price. And then from 2018 to around 2000, beginning of 2022, it kind of flipped, and, and sellers had all the negotiating leverage, and so buyers were paying a lot closer to that price of what the property would be worth after the value-add work was done. And now that we're in this crazy economy and things are starting to slow down and, and interest rates are going up and, and there's a whole lot fewer transactions going on. We're now kind of in a slow trend towards it moving to a buyer's market again, um, where likely over the next six to 12 months, what we're going to see is um, prices kind of coming back to that, that what things are worth today price, that buyer's price. Now, being that your, um, your approach is, is very heavy, construction related um uh, you know the cost of of construction materials and so forth is is definitely higher than it has been and um is, is that is that impacting your you know the your numbers in terms of you know trying to put this together and uh, and still get a good spread there so the cost of construction has always fluctuated by market depending on where the source of 
the materials are coming from. And in terms of just construction costs in general, it really breaks down to the materials and, and labor. So with re- respect to materials, when when we look at the chain supply issues that we've all encountered over the past two years, that has stressed the price of overall renovations and construction, as we've all witnessed. Um, fortunately, that ha- has been coming down. So that's been coming down for um, a plethora of reasons. One is because the chain supply issues are being sorted out. Two is because... Um, a lot of uh, distributors actually over-ordered on supplies. So that's forcing the um, the cost of materials to come down exponentially faster than they would if they um, had just ordered regular supply because now they have a surplus of inventory. Um, and then the third reason is because alternative the alternative solutions are being innovated in construction. I think construction, we can all agree, is one of the less um, – Innovated, least innovated uh, industries, um, probably of all the industries, not even real estate specific. Um, so it's overdue for a an upgrade, and we're seeing a lot of different innovations come with different sourcing materials and products, and you know, 3D printing of communities. That's that's been a huge um, uh, innovation over the past couple of years. Uh, repurposing of different products for um, for housing use. So, for example, uh, shipping containers, um, even changing existing products, let's say uh, offices and repurposing or hotels and doing conversion projects. So that, um, I think, is also helping pricing come down. Um, but then we've also had a shortage of laborers at the same time. So shortage in the workforce and shortage of uh, materials exponentially increases pricing. And as we're seeing now, those things are starting to cool off. So that's helped. But the problem that the that specific situation created is it just magnified our housing shortage. So I know that um, NMHC and the NAA, so the uh, National Multifamily Housing Council and National Apartment Association, they just issued a report in September where we have a shortage of of 600,000 housing units um, today. And the problem that we have is that during COVID, there was not only a federal um, stop on construction at one point, but then there was also kind of a self-mandated, you know, self-imposed one where people um, stopped uh, applying for permits. And once again, it was for a plethora of reasons. One is because it was very difficult to build at the cost that the um, the construction was being priced at, but um, more uh, talked about, I guess, in the news is the uh, instability of the debt markets. And when there's instability of the debt markets, there's also instability of the equity markets. So typically on um, large multifamily housing projects, most people who kind of tackle those big projects, not everyone, but by and large are larger um, single check writers, family offices, private institutions, private equity groups, and they're very uh, tied into the debt market. So when they see the debt market start to tighten, they tighten as well. So it's a pretty bad situation when both sources of capital are kind of tightening their wallets and not willing to 
um, keep uh, pulling the trigger on new product in part because they can't perform it out. What are the interest rates going to be 18 to 24 months out um, and whether or not the projects will pencil. So that, um, that problem, um, you know, everyone's talking about, well, there's more construction going on now. I think it's the second highest rate of multifamily housing construction is going on right now in history, but at the same time, how many of those projects are going to actually run full cycle and how many of those projects were initiated when our interest rates were, you know, three and a half percent or three percent. And that's what they perform it into their underwriting when they forecasted out their build. They're not going to be able to roll over into that debt when they get stabilized. So what are going to, what's going to happen with those projects. I think, you know, we're going to see a lot of projects stop mid projects. We're going to see a lot of auctions um, because the banks are not in the business of owning half finished projects and they're not in the business of owning real estate in general. So how, what, how's that going to look is something I think we all are waiting to see. Um, But in the interim, we still then have a housing shortage issue. And right now we don't have people pulling the trigger as much on new construction to offset the challenges that the people who pulled permits two years ago are facing. Mm, wow. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it sounds like it's getting complicated in, in so many ways and, and you have so many factors in the economy I mean, with inflation, recession. I mean, just, um, you know, the supply chain, I mean, on and on, that's making it even more difficult for people um, uh, on on both ends um, of, of that. Uh, and that's the one thing I, you know, I wanted to ask you, too, is really what um, what shift or, or what changes have you made in your operations and management side of it um, to to sort of respond to that or to, you know, offset that uh, um in in your particular you know properties and portfolio so on a um, ground level um, I actually just emailed uh, yesterday our asset manager that uh, next week we need to do an audit line item by line item of every single um, uh, expense item um, and also the income but expense item with the emphasis to see how can we get more creative with our expenses and what alternatives um, do we have uh, to work with? So let's say, for example, your payroll. Payroll is creeping up. It's one of the larger operating expenses for, for folks. Um, maybe on you know larger properties and on larger portfolio, you can have, you can bring in virtual leasing um, to span multiple properties. So you have essentially a call center, you can do virtual touring, you can kind of spread that expense across multiple properties as opposed to having people on site. At the end of the day, you still need to have at least someone or two people to be able to uh, handle some of these tours. But I know during COVID, one of the things that we did is we did self-guided tours. Well, why can't we go back to self-guided tours? Um, That's something that we already have the infrastructure in place. And I always like to think of COVID as an accelerator event. So I think COVID showed us what is possible 
um, without so many human touches. Now, I think human touch is important in trying to convert a sale. I'm not trying to discount that. But at the end of the day, is someone really needed to tour, um, you know, a potential resident at your property or can we go back to what we were doing during COVID and perhaps that's more cost effective. Um, Looking for alternative sources of materials, not always going with, you know, the tried and true way, but challenging the status quo on how we do operations um, to to, um, see if there are more efficient ways. That's one way we're we're, um, tightening up. Another way we're tightening up is we're not letting impatience get to us. So what I mean by that is our underwriting has stayed very consistent. We haven't um, wavered in in wanting to just chomp at the bit and get a deal. Everyone does. And, but I think the people who remain patient, stick to their guns with underwriting, um, are conservative in their, in their assessments of what interest rates are going to look like, you know, in three to five years, if your business plan is to sell in three to five years, what are those interest rates going to look like? What are the cap rates going to look like? Um, maybe it's not the traditional 10 basis points um, per year held. Maybe you want to go with uh, 15 basis points. Um, but just looking at the data constantly, Jay and I always look at how the specific markets are performing, but we also compare that to um, the global uh, or the national market as well. So we're looking at the global markets because that has an impact. We have a lot of foreign investors coming into the U.S., especially because we don't have any foreign tax today to curtail that. Um, but, you know, that's something to keep an eye on because that keeps the markets pretty frothy, um, you know, especially in a very high inflationary market. So there are things we're looking at on a um, micro level, and there are things we look at on a macro level. Jay, did you want to add some of the things I probably forgot? No, I, I think you hit on on most of the things there. I think um, from my side of the business, and I mostly focus on the capital raising um, and the underwriting side, is I think it's important that all of these things are factored in early on in the early on in the project, actually before the project's purchased. Um, so these are things that um, when doing the underwriting, when doing the due diligence, um, it's important to be doing sensitivity analysis. Um, so looking at things like um, if inflation stays high, how is that going to impact the, the business plan? versus if inflation comes down. If interest rates go up, how's that going to impact the business plan versus if interest rates stay the same or go down? Um, if the cost of labor and materials goes up and down, how are that, how's that going to factor in? And so it's important when you're doing the underwriting, um, not just to make broad assumptions, um, but to make multiple assumptions and to model out the, the, the business plan and model out the, uh, the deal um, using a, a set of assumptions as opposed to just one assumption or one set of assumptions, multiple sets of assumptions. Um, because at the end of the day, we don't know where things are headed. We don't know what's going to happen. I don't think anybody could have predicted that interest rates were going to go from 3% to 7% over the course of four months. Um, but luckily, all the deals that we do, we model out what's the worst case scenario, and we ensure that we have risk mitigation plans. We have we have ways to mitigate some of these things that are happening in the market today um, that we likely wouldn't have had if we hadn't modeled that out when we were going through due diligence and underwriting at the beginning of the project. So um, in in addition to what Ashley's saying, all the things that need to be done on the ground um, to to deal with 
with everything we're seeing, it's also important that you try and kind of head off a lot of those issues at the beginning, if possible, just by uh, by being careful and, and conservative in your underwriting. What do you think distinguishes your company from so many others out there? There's, I mean, I, I, my inbox is just packed from you know syndicators and folks that are are you know struggling, you know, just to trying to, you know, trying to get their message out there. Um, there seems to be sort of less, you know, uh, you know, less opportunity out there for folks to, you know, to find good, you know, good deals. And yet, um, you know, they're, they're trying to keep, keep it going. Um, um, what, what, what distinguishes you folks in, in, in that, uh, <laughs> that jungle out there? Well, I mean, I, I could say a lot of things. Um, one of the things that we get feedback often um, from our investors about that they really like and, and helps them feel very comfortable. One of the reasons that Ashley and I got into multifamily in the first place was that we had a lot of cash on hand that we were looking for a home for. Um, and we were investing with under, other syndicators, but at the end of the day, we're, we're both control freaks and we both think, think that we can do things better than, than most other investors out there. And so we got into multifamily for one of the main reasons was so that we'd have a place to, to put our cash where we'd also have some control over it. Um, and um, one of the things that our investors really like about the deals that we do is that we tend to put a lot of our own money in these deals. So we've done two deals this year, um, and the GP team, our partners, uh, Ashley, myself, and our third partner have put in uh, about $3 million in between those two deals this year. Um, and so um, just the fact that our interests are aligned with our investors because we have money on the passive side, on the LP side of all of our deals, um, that basically gives confidence to our investors um, that, that we really believe in the deal. Um, if we didn't believe in the deal, we wouldn't put our own money in it. And if we weren't willing to put our own money in it, we wouldn't do a deal. And so um, for us, that's a great way to align incentives with our investors. Um, additionally, um, I think everybody in the industry that invests with us and that knows us um, kind of thinks of us as kind of the I, – I, I'm, I'm the old guy. Ashley's not old, but I'm kind of, I've been around the block. I've been doing this for, for 15 years. Ashley's been doing this for close to 15 years. Um, so we're not fly by night operators. We're not somebody that just started investing a couple of years ago. Um, but we also have a lot of corporate and management and, and, um, and, and background, um, in other large businesses that really help and, and inform the way we run our own business. And so I think a lot of people just, uh, they, they like working with us because we treat our business very seriously. We put our own money in projects. Um, and, and it's really for us, this is, this is just an extension of what we'd be doing on our own anyway. Um, if we weren't taking other people's money. That's excellent. Now, do you, um, you find property management in the areas you go into, or do you actually staff it yourself? Yes. So we've been very lucky because my past experience has been uh, not so good with property management companies. And then when I uh, did that first deal that I was telling you about um, with the other partnership group, um, that property actually was in Texas as well. And um we were working with someone at that time who was beyond excellent and, um, you know, kind of going aligned with uh, the question you just asked that Jay answered on what separates us. We have an obsession of excellence and this individual 
also has an obsession with being excellent in everything she does too. Um, and she's a third generation, uh, within property management. She's not a property manager, uh, anymore, but, um, uh, she started a, uh, property management company with her mother and, uh, their family is very, very, uh, well into multifamily. The father's a developer, second generational multifamily developer. So they have a lot of connections, a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience. Um, and they're just incredible people to boot. So fortunately we were able to, uh, work with them on our projects and have been very successful working with them. So, uh, you know, when something works, um, you know, we look for ways to improve it, but it doesn't mean that we, uh, you know, are looking for ways to replace them. We're very, very content with, uh, the level of, um, you know, excellence we want to achieve not only on our investments, but, uh, with the, investors, but we know that we do so by being a beacon in the community. So it's really important for us to integrate um, with local organizations and charitable groups. Um, and we run a lot of social programs on our properties. Um, it's really important to us. It aligns also with that company too. So it's it really comes down to when you work with people that are aligned with your mission as well. It's amazing how much can get done. And that's what we have found working with this group. Um, but looking at other markets, we have worked with other local property management companies. Um, it's kind of case by case dependent. Sure. No, that's understandable. Wow. Um, this is really um, great. It sounds like you have, you have a, um, fantastic organization going there. And um, have you closed or completed full cycle on any of your deals yet? Or are they, is just the company still a little bit young for that? We've gone full cycle on two deals. So one was the deal where the property burnt to the ground. And another one was a deal that we acquired in March of 2019. Um that was in Amarillo, Texas, uh, 225 units. And that property did uh, quite well as well. Oh, that's great. Three years. Wow. That's awesome. Wow. Well, is there anything, you're just kind of looking at this too, anything that I might have missed in terms of um, things that uh, you, know, you wanted to share with us today before we uh, uh, close out? No, I, I would just recommend to, to all of your listeners that while the, the economy is crazy today, it's a very tumultuous time. We don't know where things are headed, um, but this is actually a fantastic opportunity for anybody that's looking um, to start their real estate investing career. Now's a great time to be doing things like building your network and getting educated and going out and finding people that you can potentially work with, whether it's partners or vendors or lenders or brokers. Um, now's a great time to really start preparing yourself because I have a feeling that over the next six to 12 months, we're going to start to see a lot of good deals popping up. Um, and it's going to be those people who are prepared um, that are going to be, um, quote unquote, lucky enough to get those deals. So I, I would encourage anybody that might be getting discouraged right now because the, the market's difficult, um, that now's not a time to just sit back and, and wait. Now's a great time to be learning and, and preparing and, and getting yourself in a position so that when, uh, when the opportunities present themselves, you can jump on them. 
Good advice. Good advice. Yeah, to Jay's point, um, I always find that, first of all, with every market cycle, there is upside and it's a matter of kind of timing the market and, and playing the current market um, cycle you're in, knowing which market cycle is coming next. So we're, you know, if you watch the news, we're in a recession or we're heading towards a recession. If you talk to people, I think people are pretty um, aligned with that kind of belief. But during recessions, multifamily properties tend to actually do well. And they do well for a host of reasons. They do well because of the fact that, you know, something we covered earlier uh, today with which is the supply constraints um, on new starts, but then you also have demand surge. So you have people who otherwise would have been looking for a home. Maybe they're currently a renter and they were looking to purchase a home and the affordability gap has kind of played its toll and it has made them uh, stick to renewing that lease and staying um, longer. In fact, um, in terms of, um, renters staying longer, it's up three and a half percent since last year. People are staying on average 57%. Historically, the national trend is uh, 50%. That's what you use in underwriting as a guideline that renters um, will renew 50% of the time. Well, currently it's at 57% of the time. So that's that's pretty high. Um, and that's because of the situation that we're in. So the trickle-down effect from that is that rents actually tend a lot oftentimes can actually go up in a recession. Um, and that's because, you know, you have the supply constraints coupled with the demand surge and that creates an opportunity for uh, owners to push rents a little bit more um, because where else can, can someone go? So they, they kind of capitalize on that opportunity. And then by doing so, you're pushing then the evaluation of the property. So in terms of your NOI and what I was talking about earlier with the NOI um, being the determinant for evaluating the property, you're able to evaluate the property at a higher valuation. You're able to cash flow better. So those are all things that kind of play on the current market cycle we're in. I would, um, you know, everything that Jay said in terms of being cautious and, and educating yourself and being very knowledgeable, at the end of the day, people make the deal. So if there's an investment opportunity and the numbers look great, whatever time that you've spent examining the numbers, vet the team 10 times whatever time you spent vetting the numbers. Because a team, an excellent team, can take a mediocre deal and make it a home run, grand slam, out of the park investment. But a mediocre team or a poor team can take a deal that is set to be a grand slam and be a complete and utter failure. So the team, from my personal experience, I'm sure I'm speaking with Jay on this. That's why it's so important to find the right partners finding the right investment opportunity starts with finding the right people. Um, so I would highly recommend that everyone look for the right people as your first step. Um, and then look at the market and market conditions. And then finally look at the returns because the returns don't matter if the first two things aren't set and ready to go. Right on, right on. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of folks listening that uh, really want to find out more about you and your organization. And 
I understand, uh, uh, too, that, Jay, you're coaching, too, right, uh, with uh, multi, uh, aspiring multifamily investors. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of like, you know, with your background in terms of uh, – really just your your foresight and the economy and things that are happening there and uh, i'm sure adding that into your coaching should be invaluable for people so how, how can people find out about you connect with you um and uh, not only find about your find out about you and your deals but uh, coaching as well if you want to find out about our company, uh, our company is bardowninvestments.com. Um, so you can go to bardowninvestments.com. Um, Ashley and I are both on social media. I'll let her talk about hers, but uh, you can find me as J. Scott Investor uh, on all social media. You can connect with me at connectwithjscott.com. Um, and if you want to find out more about our coaching program, it's called Apartment Addicts, um, and we basically help uh, those who are interested in doing multifamily, whether it's a 20-unit deal or a 50-unit deal or doing the big 150, 200, 500-unit deals that we're doing. Um, our, our program, I think, is fantastic. We've had a, a ton of successful students over the past couple of years, so you can go to apartmentaddicts.com uh, to learn about that. <laughs> Ashley? You can follow me at Bad Ash Investor, but ditto on everything Jay just said because he said it perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Do you have something you called, you know, apartment uh, a rehab? You know, I'm, I'm kind of moving into that area. <laughs> <laughs> we've got addicts, and we've and we can we can move into rehab as well. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Well, guys, I cannot thank you enough for uh, for being on. It's been great uh, talking to you, Jay, again. It's great meeting you, Ashley. Gee whiz, you know, you, you're a power team here. We, you, guys, you guys are going to do great. Uh, appreciate it, and, and congrats to you on, uh, on, on your upcoming big milestone. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Um, I also want to thank all our old dog listeners out there, too, for joining us. I know there's a lot of other things you could be doing right now, but the fact that you've taken the time to join us means a lot, and we greatly appreciate it. Please note, everything presented here by Jay and Ashley can be accessed in our detailed show notes, including any kind of links and so forth, at the Old Dogs website at olddogsreinetwork.com forward slash blog. And you're going to look for the episode with uh, Jay Scott and uh, Ashley Wilson. Well, that's the show for today. Remember, cash flow is king and real estate investing the means. Until next time, keep moving forward and may God bless. Thank you very much for visiting the Old Dogs REI Network. We would greatly appreciate if you would stop by iTunes and let us know what you think of the show. We would love if you could subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star rating, and write a review. The more ratings and reviews we receive, the more visible the podcast will be to others. Thank you.